Um, this morning, we're in, uh, we're in Matthew chapter 5. So we've been in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, actually, since the very end of January. And we're going to kind of land the plane this morning on the Beatitudes, on these the series of blessings that Jesus opens up his greatest body of teaching. In the last couple of weeks, uh, Trevor has done really well. Two weeks ago, um, he taught on, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The, mercy, uh, the, the, the way that Jesus frames these blessings is that these blessings are already upon the people of God. So he is not saying, be merciful so that God will give you mercy. Instead, Jesus is teaching from the posture and position that we give mercy because we have received mercy. So the merciful are fortunate and happy people seeing that we have received the mercy of God, that we're actually living in the mercy of God and we're recognizing the mercy of God upon us as we go. We're looking forward to God's mercy and as we're experiencing it and living in it and looking forward to it, naturally what the Holy Spirit does within us is he begins to compel us to extend mercy to others. And so by God's grace, this community, all of life will be known maybe even hated for how we give mercy. It's possible that we'll be accused for being too merciful to people. I wonder if the Spirit of God wants to create that kind of a radical mercy culture within us as a church. It's possible that the world will hate us for our mercy in cancel culture and in all that's going on now. Last week, Trevor taught on the pure in heart. The pure in heart are fortunate. They're happy. The pure in heart are those who know Jesus Christ and are coming to know the power of his resurrection. We recognize, even as we bump, Trevor talked about this last week, even as we bump up on this phrase, blessed are the pure in heart, immediately, like a mirror, we begin to recognize this dissonance in our own souls, this impurity in our own lives. And by his grace, we widen our stance a little bit and we continue to lunge in the direction of Jesus Christ by faith. After all, he's given us the Holy Spirit who moves us to live by our faith, not by what we can see not by what we can make sense of in this life. And now this morning, we come to another beatitude. We come to see another attribute in the already blessed people of God. He says in verse nine, blessed, Matthew chapter five, verse nine, blessed are the peacemakers or the shalom makers for they shall be called sons of God. The word sons here, um, it's a, a, a Ro an ancient Roman, uh, it's speaking of ancient Roman legal adoption language. So women are not going to become men in the new age. We are going to be distinctly who we are in the new creation. But this word sons is inclusive of both men and women. They shall be called sons, daughters, if it's helpful, of God. In one sentence, here's who a peacemaker is. A peacemaker is a person who actively prioritizes relationships and the well-being of others over their own gratification or personal vindication. 
Peacemakers are those who actively prioritize, give priority to relationships and to the well-being of people around them over their own sense of gratification or their own sense of justice needs to be met or personal vindication. Uh, this beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, has my number in a big, big way. Um, personally, I've come to really discover this. I, I've lived my life in this way um, for the entirety of it, but I've come to discover that I'm hardwired for unity and harmony. And when my own relationships or relationships around me are in a sense of dissonance or there's a lot of tension and conflict within them, uh, I can get all spun out. When there's conflict and when there is personality clash and relational clash, I just, I, I literally lose sleep. I'll wake up at two o'clock in the morning. I'll wake up at three o'clock in the morning. I'll obsess over it, mull it over. It's just, it's how God has wired me. He's wired me um, to value harmony and unity. Now, the majority of my life, I've considered the absence of conflict to be the key pathway to peace in my own life. That's just kind of what I, what I have, uh, that's been a value that I've, that I've held. And so what this means is that when tensions flare in relationships, my own relationships or relationships around me, I tend to, my knee-jerk sinful response is to move away or to become avoidant. It's to separate myself or to even avoid things that are, that, are, that are there needing attention. This is a very, very, very strong tendency within me. Almost every time that I sense relational tension, that's my sinful response. I just, my body just, my soul just starts to move in the direction of avoidance. But something that I began to learn in 2017 at the age of 39 is that my high value for harmony and peace between people, it can be used for good. It just didn't dawn on me. I just didn't like tension, and so I would move away from it. But I didn't realize that God had, has wired me uniquely to actually be able to step into situations and mediate or to bravely step into situations where there's tension that involves me and to vocalize and to, and to with a calm, kind of um, not non-anxious, but controlled anxiousness, um, step in and work for good. There's a personality profile some of you are probably familiar with. It's called the Enneagram, and the Enneagram has helped me to name this uh, sinful tendency in me. It's just given me helpful language. Before, I was just operating out of like intuition and out of gut response, but, but as I've just begun to see like, whoa, this is really how I am wired, the Enneagram gave me some language for it, and as it gave me some language for it, I began to just do work and lean in to these sinful tendencies that I'd been operating under for almost four decades. That's a lot of time spent just forming habits. Uh, it helped me to see how, as I'm wired as kind of the peaceful person, that's a high value in my life, it helped me to see how God is the author of peace. Like peace is a key, a key attribute of who he is. Jesus Christ is described as the prince of peace. The apostle Paul opens nearly all of his letters by saying what? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This high value that God places on peace opened me up to a new way of living, a new way of relating that started with my own repentance. 
that started with my own recognition of my weakness and my disordered ways before the Lord. And as I began to open myself up to him, he began to walk me forward on a path of transformation that comes through literally entrusting myself to the spirit of God. And so over the last four years, I've experienced a a deep level of transformation, but that tendency, that knee jerk in me is still just rooted and strong. Now, I want to ask a question just for feedback. Just give me, give me audible feedback. When I say, I want you to, I, I'm going to say a word, and as soon as I say this word, I want you to give me your knee-jerk response, your very first response. Don't filter it. Don't get it right for the audience. What do you think of when I say the word peace? Say it again. War. Okay. Keeper. Okay, peacekeeper, elusive, what else? What do you think of? What's the knee jerk that comes to your mind? Don't be shy, come on now, we're all family. Conflict, okay, calm, okay, hippies, we got some hippies, yeah, right? Guardian, okay. The biblical idea of peace is far more than conflict, than the absence of conflict, the absence of war, the absence of tension. The biblical concept of peace is a thread that runs through the entire storyline of Scripture. Maybe you've heard the word shalom. You're probably familiar with this word shalom. Maybe you've heard it. It's, a, it's a, a greeting that Jews to this day still use with one another. Shalom, the peace of the Lord be upon you. What they mean is not that you just be in inner tranquility and inner harmony and kind of like a hippie notion of what peace is, but there's actually, uh, it's, it's a far more full word. It, it carries the idea of continual flourishing within it. Total well-being. Total completeness, welfare. So I'll say it like this. When we're living in a state of shalom, we are as good as we possibly can be. When the world or the people of God are experiencing shalom as the Bible means for it and its ultimate culmination, things are as good as they possibly can be. They are governed by God and holy and righteous and right. All of the disorder is put into order. All of the conflict is not just resolved and people have parted ways, but there's reconciliation and intimacy between people. The the English language is unhelpful with the word peace because it it often limits the word peace. It's truncated. It's it's too narrow. It limits um, peace to the absence of conflict, but the Bible has a much broader understanding. So when we come to this beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God, it's really helpful just at 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 a surface level even for us to become aware of how much is embedded in this short phrase. Peacemakers then, shalom makers, are those who seek to bring wholeness, flourishing, completeness, and welfare wherever people are, wherever they are. It's not just moving in and mediating conflict, but it's actually trying to bring a sense of wellness and flourishing and completeness. And we do so 
For they shall be called sons of God from the position of relational security. We live as peacemakers from the position of sons and daughters of God. And so we are acting as sons and daughters who have taken on our dad's attributes, taken on our father's attributes. And the way that I tend to exhibit some of my dad, Dave, some of his tendencies, his ways, so peacemakers too, as we're shaped and filled by the spirit of God, we cannot help but act like our heavenly dad. It's just what starts to work its way out of us. A commentator that we've been using uh, pretty extensively in the Sermon on the Mount series, a guy named Frederick Dale Bruner, uh, he used to teach at Whitworth, actually. Uh, He says this, he says, um, to bring peace in scripture, to be a peacemaker in scripture is to bring community. Peacemakers are reconcilers. That's one of the key attributes of a peacemaker. It's somebody who is bringing groups of people together. They might not be in conflict. They might just not know one another. And so peacemakers can even enter into some of the disorder and some of of the divide between people who have never known one another, and they can just enter in and be an agent for a community. Back to the topic of conflict, a guy like me who doesn't enjoy conflict, God has uniquely equipped me in my personality to move toward conflict. That's what I'm beginning to recognize. I know what it does in me. It causes me to get all twisted up and all like just a mess inside. But he has uniquely equipped me in my personality to see two sides to be able to come together and bridge conflict. I've been unsuccessful at this many, many times, and I've also had some success with it. And so I'm just continuing to lean in to try to peacemake. But God has gone further than just equipping Jared in his personality. He's given me his spirit who is bringing about progressively the fruit of shalom in my life, a willingness to enter into disordered spaces and try to bring wholeness. And this isn't about me, but I'm using myself as an illustration here. He has not only done that for me, he's given you his spirit too. As the called out sons and daughters of God, he means for every single one of his people to enter into places where there is conflict or places where there is disorder or places where there is chaos or places where there just is no order yet. Nothing has been built He means for his people to lean in. Being a peacemaker by definition means we move towards situations of disarray, disarray, situations of disorder, situations of conflict, situations of injustice as well. Like a fireman runs to the fire or like a police officer runs to the fight or the sound of gunfire, God's people, uniquely equipped by his spirit, are gifted and strengthened by him to run to disorder, to run to disunity, to run to injustice, to run to conflict, to run to war, and to run to tension for the sake of bringing peace. We're called to speak up for those who are mistreated. We're called to step in and to serve those who are struggling. God means for his people to mediate between warring parties. He means for us to enter the fray not separate ourselves from it. He means for us to be in the world, not separate ourselves from it. And we have an ultimate aim in that. The ultimate aim is to see people reconciled to God. 
That's the ultimate aim. That's the ultimate motive. But what we need to also understand is that we don't control those events. We don't control how people come to know God. We don't control whether or not they will come to know God. But what we can control is that we enter in with those kinds of motives, that kind of prayer, that kind of action, hoping that they will, hoping that the Spirit will regenerate them and set them alive in faith in their, within their hearts. But we aim, oftentimes, a key way for people awakening to the presence of God and to the reality of God is through our service, through our sacrifice for them in impossible situations. It's what creates an openness of heart many times in observers. D.A. Carson, he's a living pastor and theologian. He says, the Christian's role as peacemaker extends not only to spreading the gospel, but to lessening tensions, to seeking solutions, ensuring that communication is understood. How many of us can just lean in that direction? We don't, like men especially, like we struggle with communication. Ensuring that communication is understood is a key way to creating harmony between people, community between people. How many conflicts occur because of miscommunication? So, so many. So know this, when a fireman runs to the fire, <clears throat> here's a reality when we step in and when we decide to, to live into an, the idea of peacemaking or the norm of peacemaking, sometimes when the fireman runs to the fire, he gets burned. Sometimes when the fireman runs to the fire, he gets hurt. Sometimes when the policeman runs to the fight, he gets wounded. When the Christian heads into conflict, he or she will get hurt. Often. Backing up a growling dog means you may get bit. That's just a reality when you're headed into situations where there's disorder and disarray. Jesus' ministry was full of conflict. Um, Jesus rarely had a posture looking for a fight. There were a few occasions, one I'll mention here in just a moment, where he was picking a bit of a fight, starting a bit of fun here. But every time that there was conflict with the Pharisees, they were the ones who kind of had the first word with him. Jesus is out healing. He's doing so openly. The Pharisees come and start nitpicking at him nitpicking at him and nitpicking at him. One instance where he did start the fun was when he went into the temple and he, and he flipped over the money changers' tables. You know this story. He crafted a whip. He starts cracking it in the temple, running people off. There's chaos. There is some disarray here. Why did he do it? Because there was injustice being done in these temple courts. The house of God was being used to gouge people financially. People who are coming and traveling from great distances or short in order to repent, in order to experience atonement, in order to experience reconciliation with God. They were coming to worship and they were getting gouged financially. The temple, Jesus said his own words, were that this house was meant to be a place of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So Jesus goes into this place where there is disorder and where there is injustice, and he goes in with a purpose to bring well-being and justice to the people of God. Uh, a current pastor today, he's written a, a, a fun little book uh, called what, what If Jesus Was Serious on the... Um, on the Sermon on the Mount, <clears throat> his name is Sky Jatani. He says this, just a simple phrase, avoiding conflict is not the way of God. 
Avoiding conflict is not God's way. We see it all through the biblical narrative. He's constantly entering into places of disorder, disarray, conflict, oppression, injustice. As Christians, we have to get our example of peacemaking from the life and the death of Jesus Christ, from the ways of Jesus. The way that Jesus does peace has to be the way that Christians seek to do peace. The way that Jesus pursues peace has to be the way that Christians pursue peace. And the way is rough, oftentimes. Jesus didn't appease the Pharisees. He argued with them or found himself being challenged by them often, called names by them, accused by them, eventually murdered by them. And he didn't appease Satan either. He challenged and, and, and resisted Satan in the wilderness. We saw that in the early chapters of Matthew. I think Matthew chapter 3. He resisted Satan in the desert and he defeated him at the cross. Paul, the, the writer to the Colossians in your New Testament, he says actually this, this crazy explicit line in Colossians 1 verse 20. He says that Jesus made peace, made peace by the blood of his cross. The way that Jesus made peace, the way that Jesus pursued peace was by giving his own life. Say it another way. In order to make peace, Jesus got cut. That may be the reality for you and I as we make inner decisions, as we resolve within ourselves to be peacemakers in this world that we're living in, it's possible that we may get cut. <clears throat> it's from, I, I wanna actually, you know what, I'm just gonna read this uh, briefly. Colossians um, chapter one, verse 15 through 22. If you've got a Bible, go there. Um, I don't know what page it is on the Black Bibles. Look it up in an app on your phone. I just want you to trace this with me. Colossians chapter one, verse 15. This is what Paul is saying about who Jesus is, his preeminence. It may sound familiar to you. I want you to try as much as you're, possible, as much as you're able to listen with fresh ears. Jesus is the image, so he's the flesh, the enfleshed picture of the invisible God. He's God in the flesh, God on earth. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth. He was involved in creation, visible things and invisible things, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, whether spiritual authorities or earthly authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And he is before all things, and in Jesus, all things hold together. That is, find their meaning, find their sustenance. They're sustained by him. Verse 18 of Colossians 1, and he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. So he's the first resurrected, permanently resurrected human that in everything, there's a purpose to all of this, that Jesus Christ might be preeminent, that he might be first. For in him, in Jesus, this enfleshed man, all of the fullness of God was pleased, found pleasure dwelling within him. And through Jesus, God found pleasure 
to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth, whether on earth or in heaven, here's the line, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is how reconciliation, this is how peace between God and man occurred. It occurred through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And then Paul says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, which is every person in every seat in this room, and you who were once alienated and hostile, warring against God, that's what that means, doing evil deeds, God has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death for a purpose. What's the purpose? In order to present you holy and blameless and approach and above reproach before him. That's God's posture toward you. In all of your mess, in all of your disorder, in all of your lack of peacemaking, in all of who you are, that is God's posture toward you. It's from this work of Jesus that secures our identity as secure children of God. And it's from this identity that God means to deploy us into his world, to scatter us across the globe, across the lands, into countries, into counties, into cities, into homes. It's, he means to deploy us into his world for the sake of peacemaking. We're blessed as peacemakers because we are sons of God. Now, here's what this means, that we are his representatives living with his resources. He doesn't just give us sonship. He doesn't just give us the last name. He doesn't just adopt us into the family and then ask us to live by our strength. Okay, you're good. You got my last name. All right, go. No, actually, what he does is he gives us his presence. He gives us his resources. He puts his spirit within us who then leads his people out into territory that terrifies us, out into angry streets, out across political aisles, inside broken homes, within strained marriages, out into the confused and disordered public squares, and, might I add, into anxious social media, literally to contend for peace. That's a purpose that he has for his people is that we would be contenders for peace, contenders for order, contenders for unity, contenders for reconciliation. And so it comes to a question for us, are there difficult circumstances or people that you're avoiding for the sake of peace? Do you have a sense that the Spirit of God within you is speaking to you and calling you to Christ-likeness and moving you toward those circumstances or toward those people in order to bring peace, counting the cost up front, knowing that it could go bad? It could go bad. We had all the motives. We were following the will of God, and we could suffer here and now for it. I want to ask this question too about your, um, just how you are, how you present yourself online. Are there things that you're doing, things that you're saying online that truly have nothing to do with bringing about shalom? Instead of making peace, instead of building bridges, are you making war and increasing division? 
at a minimum, I want to ask this of us because Jesus asks this of us, because Jesus gives us this identity. Have you ever defined yourself, thought of yourself as a peacemaker? Well, I don't have all the gifts. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. Stop. What does it look like for you today to begin to define yourself as a peacemaker? to begin to think of yourself as a peacemaker. Because if you are a son or a daughter of God, he has already placed that identity on you. And if he's placed that identity on you, that means something very specific, that he is going to resource you to pursue it. Remember, a commitment to peacemaking can go bad and it can hurt. Jesus was hurt. He made peace by the blood of his cross. In the truest sense, actually, Jesus was persecuted because of his righteousness, because he was righteous, which leads us to the, to the back end of the Beatitudes here. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, again, he says, are you. Now he's bringing it into your orbit. He's not just speaking about some people out there, but he's actually speaking to you. And this you is also plural. Blessed are you as a community and as individuals when others revile you. That's a strong word. When others persecute you. When others utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, he says, for your reward. There's reward for you. It's great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This isn't a new thing. This isn't a first-time thing. This is what humanity hostile to God has been doing since the beginning. We need to make sure as readers here that we understand what this passage is saying. Sometimes we can see clearly what a passage is saying by understanding what it's not saying. It doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted for blessing Jesus out of one side of their mouth while they are cursing their lazy coworker out of the other side of their mouth. It's not saying, blessed are those who are persecuted for their social media rants or because they're a jerk online. Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Righteousness here indicates Christ-likeness. It indicates godliness. Blessed are those who are persecuted because they're lunging in the direction of Christ-likeness, of godliness. That's a high aim for them. Here's a definition in one sentence of those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake are those who are persecuted because they're determined to imitate Jesus in all of life. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake are those who are, de they're, they're persecuted because of determination, because of inner resolve. They're determined to imitate Jesus in all of life. So the aim of their lives is the imitation of Jesus. The aim of their lives is to 
put on Christ-likeness. It's to walk in step with him. It's to imitate him. Like when I was a boy, I wanted to be Michael Jordan, so I tried to shape my, my shots like him. You're looking at me going, not a chance. I know, there wasn't a chance. But I was still trying to shape my, my shots, layups, all of that like him in a similar way as we look to Christ on the pages of Scripture, we begin to conform our activity, our belief, our way of thinking, our way of speaking to the record, the example that we have in the scriptures of Jesus. This shapes everything for us, especially when we're enduring hardship, because it, it, it shapes how we respond to our opponents. It, it shapes how we respond to our enemies, how we respond to neighbors who disrespect us because of our faith. I've literally had a neighbor who did not like me because we were followers of Jesus. And that just set our relationship icy and he brought it up multiple times. And we continued to kind of lean in, we'd get in spats and then he would extend an, an ask for forgiveness or I would extend an ask for forgiveness and we were never buddies, not even one time. We, I, I grumbled almost every single time I drove into my neighborhood, but the spirit of God within me would not let me hate him. Everything in me wanted to hate him. And the same for him. The spirit of God is that faithful to us. He will not let us off the hook. It's rough to be reviled. It's rough to be mistreated. It's rough to be spoken against. It's rough to be discounted just because we're followers of Jesus. And there is unique, like I just said, there is unique opportunity to sin when you're disregarded, to sin when you're berated. There's unique opportunity to sin when you're mocked, when you're left out, when you're falsely accused, when you're hated because you're trying to honor Jesus Christ. Our country is hardening her heart toward followers of Jesus. That's the world that we live in. Some of it's our fault, just to be frank. Some of it is because of the profession of our faith and because we want to stand for righteousness' sake. I'm only 42 years old, and I have never seen a time of division, anything like this, of rampant relational cutoff, tension. It's, if we're aiming to, if Jesus Christ is our highest allegiance, it's so likely that we will experience what Jesus is speaking of here, persecution, reviling, uttering all kinds of evil, falsely. It's not even gonna be true. Some of it might be, but most of it's not even gonna be true. If we choose to live by values established by God, if we choose godliness over worldliness, you and I will find ourselves in a head-on conflict with our culture, and it's going to hurt. Let the reader understand. Let the, the church hear what the Spirit of God is saying to her. Widen your stance. Consider your time and place. Consider the Lord Jesus and his authority and his words. To make matters worse, it seems, Jesus gives us two commands when we're wounded on his account. He says, rejoice and be glad. 
How in the world am I supposed to rejoice or how in the world am I supposed to be glad when all I'm experiencing, it seems, in the here and now is pain, cut off, marginalization, disrespect, loss of income, loss of property, whatever it might be. How in the world is rejoicing and being glad an option on the table for me? If I'm convinced that my reward is found here on earth and in this life, then suffering for Christ makes no sense and should be avoided at all costs. If I'm convinced that the reward that I am supposed to experience is in the here and now, but if I'm convinced, according to the, if I take Jesus at his word and I recognize that my reward isn't here, he actually gives it an objective place. He says it's great in heaven. If I realize that my reward will be realized at my last day, then it does something to me. It prepares me to endure in a world that may be hostile to me because it's been hostile to Jesus. What are his words? If they hated me, they're going to hate you. And if I and you really do have the spirit of God within us, animating us, renewing us, focusing us on the glory of God, then maybe it really is possible to rejoice when I suffer for the sake and the name of Jesus Christ. If I count the cost on the front end. Now, in that moment, I don't know how it will go. I could come forward with a sinful response. I could come forward with a response that honors God. But here is where the rejoicing and gladness comes from, according to the promise of Jesus. He said to his disciples, you're gonna face all kinds of trouble in Mark chapter 10. Don't worry about what you're gonna say. Don't worry about what you're going to do. The spirit will come to you and he will give you words. So here's where the rejoicing and here's where the gladness comes from in moments of trial. It wells up within us as a gift from the Holy Spirit. It's not something that you and I can control, but it is something that we can be confident will come in our moment of needs, in our moment of need. Acts 5.41 is one of the most perplexing verses in the whole New Testament for me. I'm just gonna, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna look at it briefly here and then, we'll, and then we'll be done this morning. But Acts 5.41 is this moment where it's early on, it's like a year after Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, if, you're, if you're kind of following the storyline, it starts in Acts chapter five, verse 17. The apostles are out proclaiming the name of Christ uh, they're serving. The community is gaining steam. People are being baptized. The Pharisees, are, are, they, they were not able to, to quell this rebellion rising up from among them of these Christians. They're anxious about all of it. They're trying to stamp it out with force. And so what they do is they arrest the apostles and they bring them before this council. They actually put them in a public prison. They tell them to stop talking about Jesus. An angel, yes, an angel, visits these apostles in prison by night, opens it up, and tells them to go back to the cultural center, to the public square, to the temple, and to begin proclaiming Jesus again. He lets them out at night. That's where they roll in the morning. The Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, all of these religious rulers, the most powerful governing authority over Israel comes together that morning and they are gonna talk about it and they summon some guards to go and get the prisoners and bring them. The guards come back and say, they're not there. 
Then somebody, they're perplexed. They're wondering what's gonna come of this. Then somebody else comes in and says, look, they're in the temple courts doing exactly what you told them not to do, proclaiming Jesus. They detain them again. They bring them before the council. They say, we told you not to talk about Jesus. These disciples say, you decide whether we should obey you or whether we should obey God, but we've been told by God what we are to do, so we're gonna stick with him. A teacher from within them, Gamaliel, he, 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 he raises his voice among them and he says, hey, listen, there've been all kinds of different people that have, that, have, uh, that have raised insurrections in Israel. If it's from God, you're gonna fail at putting it down. If it's from men, it'll fail on its own. Look at these two historical sources and he gives them names. And then he says, guys, stop. The Sanhedrin, they decide to follow his counsel, Gamaliel's counsel. And what do they do with these disciples? They beat them. They release them and charge them again not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And, and Acts chapter 541 says, they left the presence of the council, the apostles did, what? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. They just got their handed to them. Literally, they're bleeding and bruised and their posture is rejoicing. What's the motive for the rejoicing? They were counted worthy to be in the company of Jesus. Jesus bookends this last beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted for they will be called son, or for, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven with the same exact promise as he started out with the very first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He begins with one promise and he ends the beatitudes with an identical promise. He promises the kingdom to the person who's poor in spirit, that person who understands spiritual bankruptcy. And then he prom promises the receipt of the kingdom to the person who takes their newfound understanding of spiritual bankruptcy and need all the way to the end staying allegiant to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same person. The person who humbles themselves before the Lord stays humble by the grace of God over the course of their life, continues to pursue, may even be persecuted for it, and they'll stay, per they'll stay until the end. Jesus the King gave up his life to secure our well-being. Jesus the King came so that we might not just have one life, here in the now, in the flesh, 70 years, give or take, but he came to give us an eternal life defined by abundance, a life where shalom is expansive, unchallenged, existence, our existence is as good as it can possibly be. That's the life that he came to give us. But it's not necessarily this life and the circumstances that we find ourselves in. So I wanna ask this question as we land. Are you trusting this king? Are you entrusting yourself to this king? Are you counting the cost of what your discipleship to Jesus may bring? Are you weighing heavily 
that your life here and now could look like total loss? And are you weighing the promise that he is faithful to the very end to you? The kingdom of God belongs to you. He is alive, resurrected from the dead, governing all things and seeking you, me, us, our allegiance. Trust him. Trust him. Trust him. Father, help us to trust you. Uh, the, the thought of persecution is heavy. <clears throat> the thought of persecution is uncomfortable and we run from it. We also don't want to be, we want to be sober-minded. That's what we want. We don't want to claim persecution where it's not really persecution for righteousness sake, but maybe persecution for other things like personality flaws and bad behavior. Help us to weigh what persecution is and to resolve ourselves to stand firm as your followers, that even if they tell us not to gather or even if they tell us not to speak the name of Jesus in public or if they tell us not to share the good news of Jesus in public, that we will weigh whether it is right to obey man or whether it is right to obey God and we will be found obeying you. Strengthen us, Holy Spirit, for life ahead, culminating in eternal life with you. In Jesus' name, amen.